This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Our first speaker is uh, Professor Gregory Justanus, uh, who's a distinguished professor of modern Greek studies at the University of Ohio. Um, who a number of years ago uh, wrote a, a very important book called The Necessary Nation, uh, focusing on, on the notion of national culture and uh, 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 identity. And he's written subsequently uh, further books of related modernity and uh, aesthetic culture, and he's currently working on, on a book on, on friendship. So it's with great pleasure I introduce Professor Justice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm really honored for this uh, invitation, uh, particularly since I'm not a social scientist and I'm not really a scholar of nationalism. I came to nationalism, I'm a literary critic, and I came to the subject of nationalism from my interest in the formation of, of uh, culture, national culture as an institution. And then I decided to write, spend a long time to write a book uh, about it, in the same way that I decided to write a book on friendship when I just uh, finished. And in this book on friendship, I'm trying to figure out a theory of friendship and a theory of literature based on the notion of empathy, on the notion, on our capacity to be able to think and put ourselves in the place of uh, somebody else. So when I got this uh, invitation and this kind of invitation from the organizers, I thought what I would do is begin something new and try to figure out how friendship, what friendship has to say to our sense of national uh, belonging, and I'll end with that. So I'll begin with two texts, Greek texts that may not be familiar to, uh, to you, and then I'll move to a Brazilian text that I discovered that I think is really needed, addresses some of these concerns, and then I'll go on to talk about how friendship, I think, addresses the sense of uh, uh, national belonging. Now, my name Gregory Greek means fast. Is that, am I going too fast? Is, is that okay? All right. Okay, so I begin with an episode. I was sitting in the Caribbean city of Cartagena, where I was going to go give some, uh, some seminars, and I picked up the Colombian newspaper at Tiempo, and I uh, looked at the title of a lead article. It said, From the Mule to the Airplane Without a Break by Carlos Castillo Cardona. The flight suggested in the title from pre-industrial to the modern seemed very familiar to me. And I quote and I translate the first, uh, the first paragraph. Our, par our grandparents say, used to say that Colombia had passed from the mule to the airplane without any sense of continuity. This was a criticism of the changes in the transportation systems of our country that were so rapid and so radical that they left no infrastructure. This passage from the mule to the airplane had been the fate, has been the fate of our progress, which imitated and dependent his little foundation. End of quote. As I noted with my pen on the article, oh, wow, I've seen this uh, before, and I felt this article could have been written by a Greek or any post-colonial uh, critic. For the journalist, uh, Castillo Cardona captures a characteristic feature in the self-perception of these societies a sense of belatedness, incomplete modernization, failure, self-loathing, always motivated by comparisons to, with, with societies where modernization allegedly is more organic or complete. 
Carlos Castillo Cardona's article also sees national identity as much a temporal as a spatial feature, regarding it as a construct of time and the inadequate attainment of progress. Before, because modernization is so rapid, the article goes, moving from the, from the letter to the mobile phone, it is incomplete. So we're still operating within this ideological tension, I said to myself as I finished the article. Go to Greece today and you will find this problematic on every street corner, in political demonstrations, TV shows, the internet. Greeks feel, them, uh, Greeks feel themselves and have always felt themselves belated, a feeble copy. And the inhabitants of Greece that have been trying to catch up with the, with the West since the sack of Constantinople by the Latins in 1204, which is a long time, since the fall of the Byzantine Empire to the Ottomans in 1453, and especially since in the age of nationalism since the 18th century. This idea of belatedness is saturated. You can see it everywhere. You can see it in scholarly books. For example, I was asked to review a book called Rethinking the Space of Religion that was published in 2012 that dealt with uh, religion. And the two articles on Greece demonstrated how, with respect to national and religious identity, Greeks feel an anxiety of influence and consequently of inadequacy. Discussions of orthodoxy, for instance, still oscillate between tradition and modernity. The Europeanists argue that the traditional emphasis on patristic studies and Byzantium removes focus away from the real message of Christianity, which is the Bible. They advocate that orthodoxy, they think, should come to terms with modernity through a dialogical stance towards the world. Their opponents, however, see orthodoxy as the boundary line between the Eastern Byzantine heritage and modern secular Europe. They thus understand the emphasis on biblical interpretation as a form of Protestantization of orthodoxy. And recently I read a book on education, that, that, on Greek education that was catching up and, obje and objecting to uh, Europe. If there is little new to this debate, it is because Greece, like Colombia and many other post-colonial countries, find themselves still operating within the tradition modernity of opposition, seeing themselves as latecomers to modernization and as a result perceive their identity as a function of time and progress and their inability to come to terms with this progress. Um, I believe this encounter with modernity and one's definition with it is one of the most essential human experiences. And I'd like to refer to the five books I just read in the, in the last couple of months in preparation for this uh, paper. Uh, the first one is a, his a History of Future Cities by Daniel Brooks, which demonstrates how cities like St. Petersburg, Shanghai, Mumbai, and more recently Dubai were purposely built to push their population into modernity trying to copy and rival the West at the same time. Going back in time, in his royal commentaries of the Incas by Castilazo de la Vega el Inca, who was born in Cusco in 1539, a Spanish father and an Inca mother, he wrote his monumental work trying to make sense of the destruction of his society and the sense of sort of progress that Spain uh, represented. On a more human scale, the Zimbabwean writer Tsitsi Tangaremba shows in her novel, Nervous Conditions, how, how education, first in a mission school run by her uncle, and then later in a white convent, represented for her a step into modernity, into white society, and even if it meant her assimilation into this society. 
And finally, in a recent TEDx talk, the Nigerian novelist Shimaramba Andichi, who recently won the National Book Critics Award for her novel Americana, also spoke about this need both to become modern, but at the same time reckon with the loss of her tradition. Here, in this paper, I would like to consider the most effective way of understanding and describing the encounter of the self with Western modernity. For I don't think it's helpful for people to see themselves in a never-ending race of catching up and uh, characterizing themselves as laggers in this race to catch up. And here I'll begin then with my first Greek uh, text. In, in, so I begin with this word uh, text, the tradition, in this tradition, by Adamandios Korais, whom Elikaduri has called one of the masters formulators of cultural uh, nationalism. And his dates are 1748 to 1833. Born in Smyrna, is in the Ottoman Empire, and having spent his adult life in France, he was one of the great Enlightenment nationalist figures, author, editor of classical texts, linguists, and educators. His report, uh, his report on the present state of civilization in Greece, which was given to a society in France in 1833, uh, gives us this classic case of how one should modernize in the 19th century. Let us, let us look at how Corais himself presents himself under the Orientalist glare of his audience. He expects the racism of his listeners and apologizes for his national origins. Quote, may I be allowed to tell the society that I should not feel, that it should not feel mistrust toward me because I am Greek. He then adds that, that nothing undoubtedly is more natural than to love the nation to which one belongs more than any other. But he speaks to the society because he wishes to solicit their help in the modernization project of the Greeks. And let me provide a background here. The year is 1802-1803, and the Greeks in the diaspora and within the Ottoman Empire are preparing to rise up against Ottoman rule. Korais himself is a major participant in this effort through his scholarly and intellectual labor. Here in the society, the French society, he outlines the modernization project. Greeks, he argues, are in a state of ignorance, having been ruled by Ottomans for 400 years and having had their natural links to the Christian brethren of, in Europe cut. Deprived of their liberty and of the, most, and of the resources that his French audience presumes unnecessary to life, they have decided not only to rebel against Ottoman uh, authority, but to modernize their, what he says, backward society. Young men, that is young men, Greek men, go to Europe to study and to enrich themselves. They learn languages, they study science, they open up trading houses in major European cities. Now, it is interesting that Torais sees a relationship amongst these three factors of commerce, enlightenment, and freedom the one leading to the other in a circle of cause and effect. Now, what I'd like to point out here is the model that he uses this, this phenomenon. He sees this in one of poverty. The Greeks go abroad, quote, in the spirit of emulation. They settled in Europe, they learn, and they translate, and they transport this knowledge and know-how back to Greece. His position presumes the superiority of the West and the inferiority of the local. Indeed, by going abroad, Greeks, quote, gain the esteem of the foreigners, which he says our nation should never have lost. The model here is Europe, and specifically France, with the French Revolution being the focal point of this admiration. 
Quote, the Greeks seeing in the astonishing successes of the French army, nothing but the effects of enlightenment seek proportionately to their admiration for these successes, to multiply educational openings. Many books, he says, are translated now because Greeks want to modernize. Quarius's strategy is then twofold. First, he emphasizes direct, direct links between Greece and Europe, calling the inhabitants of the island of Chios, the Frenchmen of the Levant. And as Greeks were the first Europeans, by borrowing from Europe now, they're merely repaying a debt owed to them by the current uh, Europeans. Then, in order to appeal even more to his audience's sense of familiarity, he draws another relationship between ancient and modern Greeks. Knowing the privileged position occupied by ancient Greek culture in Western Europe, he argues that ancient Greece, modern Europe, and modern and the Greece of today all belong to the same cloth. As he tells his French audience, contemporary Greeks tell themselves, quote, we are the descendants of the Greeks, we must either try to become again worthy of this name or we must not bear it any longer. As I mentioned earlier, informing Horace's view is the need to copy something original and superior. Europeans borrowed from ancient Greeks and now modern Greeks borrow from Europe. He sees this process as a passive translation rather than as a creative reworking. And he portrays this encounter between the local and the foreign as unproblematic. If I can place this in the context of literary translation, the local and inferior participants simply pays tribute and quotes the original text without an opportunity to parody it, parody it or to transform it in any way. This type of emula emulation recognizes difference between the local and the foreign, the belated and the advanced, and attempts to translate the differences into sameness. Now, I'm going to reach for my water. Thank you. In reality, of course, the procedure of translation is never that simple. The project to translate institutions and discourses from one society fails to reproduce the foreign model because of differences between the two societies and because of resistance to the importation. For this reason, the translation of texts can never aim or result in semantic equivalence from one language to another. Not a single word in our one language corresponds perfectly into another, as the Enlightenment and biblical scholar and theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher noted. Not only the metaphoricity of language, the fact that we always say something in terms of something else, not only that, but the actual local reception is uncontrollable. Lawrence Venuti, a scholar of translation, argues that translation leaves intact neither social reality nor translated text. The local situation is not a homogeneous audience, but fragmented, made up of people with diverse values, interests, and beliefs. Every new translation, therefore, rather than giving us an invariant original, is an interpretive and evaluative act. It can never be literal, but figurative. Because of these structural differences of language and their historical and social situations, a translation ends up rearranging and dismantling the original chain of signifiers. But, as Schleiermacher wrote in 1833, we are compelled to translate. Although he meant the translation of texts, I think this insight applies to both cultural encounters in general and not just in literature. For this reason, the procedure of emulation, the original project of 19th century nationalists, does not really capture what really happened to their projects or to any project, really. It saw the foreign as the master, the teacher, who would enlighten the ignorant and obstreperous pupil. 
and it's through the local in a debilitating dynamic as the inferior and belated catching up with a cosmopolitan as superior and advanced. But what is positive in this project, however, faulty it may have been, is in its, in its theoretical self-representation, is the trans transnationalism that informed it. Social existence has always been global, a process of our encounter with people, ideas, products, states beyond our homes. And now I move into my second text that tries to deal with this encounter in a more modern way. Yorgos Theotokas, Electropnevma, or Free Spirit, accepts this dynamic as it also proposes a non-imitative view of the West. Written in 1929, it represents a major attempt of the Greek critic to rethink the relationship between Greece and Europe and to move away from the derivative model of the 19th century to a more active and participatory one. It is interesting that Wakorais wrote from the outside looking in, so Tokas looked at the issue from the inside. While born to the Hellenic diaspora in Istanbul, he, did, he returned to Greece feeling the centripetal pool of Greek nationalism. Considering the issue from inside the national borders, Theotokas asked primarily what could Greece give back in the process of global cultural exchange, and this is the difference. And this, of course, was another way of asking how Greece would become modern. No longer satisfied with cultural importation, he and his generation strive for andapogosy, which is really a sense of repayment or reciprocity, reciprocation, which is going to be cent central in my discussion of friendship at the end of my talk, wishing in this case to enter a conversation with the outside world on cultural exchange. Although nationalist feeling pulled him towards Greece, it did not imprison him. On the contrary, he sought to open doors and windows to Europe. Theotokas begins his manifesto with a description of the traditional encounter of the provincial, what he calls the provincial, with the cosmopolitan. And he says, when this person travels to Europe, he becomes dizzy at the marvels and successes of Europe. This trope, I have shown, is really standard, and we have seen it in the 18th century in Greece, and we have seen it in the text that I mentioned before of Garcilaso de la Vega, an Inca who went left Peru to go to Spain, or Peter the Great when he went to Amsterdam. This encounter between the provincial and then the modern is such a, sh is, is such a uh, shock. In the past, according to Theotokas, the provincials had lost their critical judgment in the admiration of the West seeking strictly to import what was foreign and new. And thus, departing from this position of slavish imitation, Theotokas takes a different view. In the cultural bubbling of Europe, he asks, what place does Greece occupy? What do Greeks contribute in the creative process? What do we offer in exchange? How do we participate? Nobody takes us seriously. And we can't justify our position in Europe where people continue to see us as sailors and shopkeepers. Like Corais before him, Theotokas recognizes the power of the orientalizing gaze and the European measuring rod according to which cultural value is still determined. While the reference is Europe is inescapable, the orientation differs. For Theotokas takes a distance from the many Greek intellectuals of the 19th century and of his time, who he feels were imprisoned by tradition and nationalism in this need to imitate. In the pursuit of Greek national character, he felt they turned inwardly seeking salvation in the self and also in this uh, imitation, whereas he wants to switch the uh, relationship. 
he portrays the relationship of Europe as a, he portrays the literatures of Europe as participating in a system of trade that resembles Goethe's Weltliteratur and contemporary descriptions of world literature. The problem for Greece, he argues, is that this, its literature has been passively accepting influences without, again, reciprocating. A literature quote gains international standing when it begins to influence without ever stopping to be influenced. He strives to present the Greek literature in this global literary exchange. We want true theater, he says, true novel, true discussion of, uh, of ideas. Theotokas' position does not reject the West, but responds to it and strives to fashion a place of quality, which also becomes central in my discussion of friendship later on. He sees Greece's rightful place in world literature as an equal participant, criticizing both xenophobia and passive reception. So Dukas presents a vision of world literature that is noble and worthy. The only problem is that the exchange he admires is unequal. If Greece has no standing in world literature then or today, it's not really only the fault of the Greeks. We have learned since his writing that the global system of literary commerce is as inequitable as the economic one. Various countries have the financial and technical means to support their literature and project them abroad with a vigor that smaller countries could not imagine. The critic Franco Moretti has shown this with respect to the novel. He argues that while literature constituted a global system in previous eras, in the modern capitalist period, key countries in Western Europe flooded the world with their books, especially the novels. Quote, Books from the core were incessantly exported into the semi-periphery and periphery, where they were read, admired, and imitated, turned into models, and thus turning those literatures into orbits of core ones. And then this asymmetric diffusion imposed a stunning sameness on the literary system, wave upon wave of epistol epistolary fiction and, non and historical novels. They saturated the markets in the way that American movies and cultural culture uh, uh, popular culture does to uh, day. Moreover, global languages like English, French, and Spanish give to their writers the possibility of a wide readership that Macedonian, Tagalog, or Farsi can hardly imagine. Thus, I would argue that someone writing in English, even in Delhi or Lagos, has a much better chance of getting a global public than one writing Albanian in Albanian in, uh, in Tyranny. Finally, there are tastes and international values that offers a little control over. Westerners once took an interest in, in Greece because of the war in independence. They signed the Greek War of Independence, a Christian society struggling against uh, a, a Muslim uh, one. And they took interest in writers like Dionysius Solomos, who became the national poet of Greece because they saw in him a quintessential author of this Christian author struggling against uh, Ottoman authority. Subsequently, we can say, the Greek Gothic Western readers took an interest in Greece because they saw Greece as a modernizing society. So they took an interest in authors like Nikos Kazantzakis and Zorba the Greek, as, and they saw in, in this, this struggle against uh, 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 tradition. And finally, we can say that Greeks, uh, Westerners took an interest in Greece during the Greek dictatorship between 1967 and 1974, and seeing again Europeans struggling against uh, 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 dictatorship. Now, however, people gaze, people, the, the Western gaze towards Greece is negative, and Greece represents, in Western perspectives, a picture of sloth, 
corruption, inefficiency, and uh, dysfunction. And for this reason, because these tastes change, local authors have really little control over how their books are going to re be read. And that's why I would argue that a book like Reading Lolita in Athens would make no sense as a publication venture. But Reading Lolita in Tehran became an international sensation in 2003 for uh, obvious uh, reasons. So, Returning back to my, pep, uh, by, uh, to my uh, paper, accepting these inequalities that I just enumerated in the global literary system is not a reason to withdraw within borders. We have no other choice but to translate and to participate in the exchange. The challenge is how to conceive of this exchange between self and other that is neither xenophobic nor imitative. We need theories that affirm the self with confidence while presenting a realistic appra appraisal of intercultural encounters. And I'm going to move into this neat sort of Brazilian author that I, that I discovered uh, recently, and I want to tie this to my, finally to my idea on friendship. So this is the force behind Oswald Andrade's idea of anthropophagy. This Brazilian writer and critic proposed in his polemical Manifesto Anthropophago, published in the first issue of Revista de Anthropophagia in Sao Paulo, 1928, just one year earlier than Theotokas' manifesto. And I think he said that the best strategy to take with respect to the cultural legacy and industry of the West is neither the nationalist logger nor traditional emulation. He, along with his brother Mario, was one of the leading intellectuals and poets of Brazilian modernism in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. For my little uh, sort of understanding of the topic, and I don't know uh, Portuguese, the Brazilian modernists faced a challenge similar to those of the Greeks, to free poetry from traditional writing, but also to emancipate it from European poetics. Specifically, Dandrage and his contemporaries complained that, that under colonialism, Brazil exported only raw materials and imported culture. He wanted, like Theotokas, to reverse this uh, process and make Brazil the net exporter of cultural goods. In order for Brazilian culture to achieve originality, he argued, the same desire as Theotokas, is not to close the doors to the outside world, but to assimilate and to, con and to convert it into something unforeseen. And he defined anthropophagy, which is a Greek word, as the absorption of the sacred enemy in order to transform him into a totem. And I'll explain. Oswald Andrade proposes anthropophagy or cannibalism as a theory of cultural contact that assimilates otherness through a process of symbolic ingestion. As such, rather than rejecting the other, it proposes that people incorporate it creatively into their identity, that they make it part of their own self-fashioning. His theory suggests the act, the critical devouring of the global cultural heritage, practiced not by submission, but by active participation. So, although Theotokas and Andrade are both writing at roughly the same time and from a position of semi-periphery, they register their desire for autonomy, for reciprocity, for giving back, for originality, and for recognition, that is for someone to recognize them. In short, they plead for diversity in a system heading for, for sameness. They propose assimilation of otherness through adaptation and revision and of staking out originality, originality in the system of exchange. I accept this position but I would like to recast it. 
that is, I would like to describe this confrontation of self with another as an encounter between self and friend. I feel this dialectical process helps us overcome the belatedness conundrum and the attendant association with inferiority and underdevelopment. And it encourages to move away from the model of copying and emulation to envision a dialogic model of cultural contact. My proposal may sound naive, and it may contradict my critique of Fyodor Kass. For I argued previously that the system of literary commerce is not reciprocal, and reciprocity is a foundation in the relationship of friendship. Moreover, friendship seems to be based on a process of likeness that undermines my claim for a, dialo for a dialogical nationalism. I would like to address these apparent inconsistencies in this part of the paper. First, I would like to argue that a relationship of friendship expresses and necessitates this differential logic described by Dan Dragic and Theodor uh, Gass. My starting point is Aristotle's definition of friendship as another self, which is, I think, central to his work on friendship. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes that a person, quote, is related to his friend as to himself, for his friend is another self. His expression, so crucial to our, um, to our understanding of friendship, is ambivalent. It suggests that friendship develops into an imperfect interaction between self and other. At the very least, it means that a person has the same attitude towards his friend as to himself. And more likely, in speaking of the friend as another self, Aristotle implies that a person loves the friend, quote, as both the other and the same. Aristotle writes that the friend is both an extension of the self, yet also a separate being. In loving the friend, one loves him as both the other and the same. Friendship then comprises both similar and dissimilar elements. Aristotle thus understands friendship as an associative, but not completely sealed bond. And his conception is unlike Hegel's definition of love as, quote, the consciousness of my unity with another so that I am not isolated on my own, but gain my self-consciousness only through the renunciation of my independent existence through, the, through knowing myself as the unity of myself with another and of the other with me. To love in this sense requires the burial of the self in the desire to envelop and be enveloped by the other. Love functions like a metaphor where one person is subsumed to the other, merging with her. Aristotle, however, speaks of friendship as an autonomy, the linkage of one with the other. As such, friendship operates as a combining that does not require the loss of the self in the other. In short, friends are bound in a federation without having to abandon their individualities or national identity to place the argument in the framework of our uh, conference here. In a relationship of friendship, people, talk, people try to envision both a connection with a friend while also acknowledging a distance between them. They imagine both the equivalence, that is the diminishing of the distance between self and other, and a difference, that is the extension of this distance. Social and political life necessitates that people deal with social, economic, racial, and national distinction. They have to ask ultimately what constitutes them as a people who occupy a particular space. And these questions come down to how they understand the friend in relationship to uh, the other. Now, if I can bring this discussion back 
to, to, to my earlier discussion of uh, nationalism. This relationship does not mean that the other is a friend. I'm not trying to give an empirical defin a, a, a sort of description of reality. I am not saying that the Kisadors were friends of the Incas. I'm trying to give <laughs> a theoretical sort of uh, trying to develop a theory of this encounter based on the friend's self-understanding. I'm not saying that we're all friends. But my, my, my argument suggests that each nation, rather than being a sealed entity of nationalists, sees itself mirrored in the eyes of the other. I am what you say I am, as the rapper Eminem pleads. Each nation carries within itself other translated elements that allow transnational communication and understanding. We are similar as much as we are different. I borrow this insight from the evolutionary psychologist Matthew Lieberman, who argues that social values and norms enter surreptitiously into our consciousness to, sub to supplement our natural instincts with socially derived impulses, with the end result of guiding our behavior and leading social coexistence. Trying to, to connect this insight with, the argue with my argument of Theotokas and Leandage, I suggest that seeing the relationship between nations in terms of friend and the other means that we see the relationship in terms of honor and dignity, where the weak and the exploited seek equality and reciprocity, even if the latter don't yet exist. It suggests that we try to incorporate the other not in servile imitation, but as a creative project of protecting local autonomy, self-worth, while striving to get to know, to borrow, to take, and to give, even if what is offered is still not wanted. Seeing the relationship to the other as that of the friend, even if the other does not recognize the friendship, implies a position of equality and of reciprocity from the perspective of the self. The self seeks contact with the outside, even if this world may be hostile. The ultimate aim is to change the other, to inject one's own marginalized self into the other's constitution. What, in a sense, I would like to do is link Dandraja's theory of anthropophagia with my theory of friendship. The idea of anthropophagia is a Brazilian response to the colonial representation of the natives cannibal, which, in which turns the indigenous residents to Taliban, prosperous slave, into a, someone that's going to, into you are a Taliban. So they take this and they turn it into a counter theory in the same way that gay theorists can take queer and turn it into sort of queer theory. So Anthropophagia takes the situation and twists it into an encounter, into a counter theory, emboldening post-colonials to cannibalize the world's culture for their own purposes. So in bringing Dandrajefiotokas, the Greek and Brazilian nationalism and friendship together, I would like to argue that in the uneven global system where transnational encounters are inevitable and necessary, the solution is not withdrawal into the native house, however comforting that may be, but an active engagement with the world. By postulating out the other as a friend, one attempts to open up a dialogue of equality not only to speak, but to change oneself, and through the change, by demonstrating some familiarity, to transform the culture of the other clandestinely, as if by a, by a Trojan uh, by means of a Trojan horse. You seek no, sim no longer simply to emulate, but to engage actively and to give back, as Theotokas insisted. For self-worth lies in one's ability to contribute to the global exchange, and not just to be on the receiving on the receiving side. So. 
to uh, conclude, my proposal again does not seek a, an empirical description of the world. Rather, what I would like to do is bring attention to this friend-other dynamic and this dynamic of, as, and the sense of empathy it requires, the autonomy it preserves, the dignity it claims, the translation it presumes, and the exchange it endorses. Ultimately, the friend-other relationship allows us to see cultural contact as a process of assimilating the other, allowing yourself to be assimilated by him or her, actively taking what is of interest, not being cowed by hostility or indifference, while demanding respect of the self and change in the other. Thank you. Okay.